Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Galatians chapter 2, first 10 verses, that's where we're going. Um, I just want to warn you, it has one of the maybe strangest verses in the Bible. Because um, I've, I've, I've been, and here's a verse, it, it's verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, even Titus was not circumcised. Aren't you glad you're not Titus? I mean, does the whole, does 2,000 years of people studying the Bible need to know uh, that um, even Titus was not circumcised. I've been in a lot of settings where somebody will say, what's your favorite Bible verse? And everybody goes around, no, I've never heard anybody say. Um, I've been in all throughout the South and Midwest and places I've been in people's homes and they have cross-stitched, you know what, verses up on their walls. And I've never seen even Titus was not circumcised. And yet, um, it, is, it could be one of the most significant verses in the New Testament Uh, because the future of Christianity is at stake in whether Titus is circumcised or not. So stand, and uh, I'll try to not mention circumcision again, actually. Um, We're going to read from Galatians. Remember, Paul um, is unique. So he's not trained by uh, Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. He's different from all the other apostles, um, he is a Jew. A matter of fact, he was a Jew of Jews. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was in the ruling body of the Jews. He would have known Judaism and, and all its aspects more than any other Jew. He was an expert in, uh, in the law of Judaism. Um, but then something happens to Paul. Uh, he's, he's converted. And he's trained by the Lord Jesus himself. And Paul's also a Roman citizen, which was distinct. And so he starts taking the gospel to the Roman world, to the Gentile world. And everywhere he goes, he starts churches and then he moves to a new area and he starts churches. Well, this is a letter that he's writing to churches he started in Galatia. Got it? And we read from chapter two. Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them Though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, now what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. But those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw what I had been entrusted, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Spirit of the living God, we, uh, we are hard-hearted. We are not very teachable. So if we're to learn, it will be because of your mercy. Come amongst us. We need you. We need Jesus. Open our hearts and minds. We don't want to waste this time. Come and, uh, and do your work in us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated, please. You know, there's really no doubt that there's too much quarreling in our culture. And uh, it's generally a good admonition that we ought to try to do everything we can to sort of notch the temperature down just uh, a little bit, right? And having said that, though, there are things worth fighting for. I got on an airplane recently and the pilot said, we're not going to take off. Uh, not yet. He said, there's a computer that is not working. It's a, a navigation computer. We have two of them. We have a redundant uh, system, but we're going to get the, the backup. Even though it's the backup, we're going to get it fixed. You know what I thought? I'm good with that. I'm always good with uh, getting the plane ready to fly before it takes off with me inside, right? Redundant safety systems, all for them. Um, there's things worth fighting for. That's what pilots are to fight for, right? The safety of their passengers. You know, in uh, Washington, D.C., they were gathered yesterday on the National Mall to remember that 60 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered the I Have a Dream speech right there in front of the Lincoln Memorial, right? It's an iconic moment in American um, history, so important, because Dr. King knew that there were things worth fighting for. There were deep wounds in American culture that needed um, to be healed, right? There are always things worth fighting for. Last weekend, my, um, my wife and I have a daughter who lives in Orlando, and together with uh, our son-in-law, they have a ministry in a community that's blighted and broken, lots of uh, drugs and gangs and shootings. And, um, and interestingly enough, that, that, that area of the community is called Crosstown. Isn't that an interesting name? Crosstown. The town where maybe the cross of Jesus Christ, the part of town where the cross of Jesus Christ could, could enter into that culture and, and bring uh, hope and healing. And they told us last week that they've started a school in Crosstown. And, I, and you guys were so good. You just gathered around the table he had out there and got information and, and were so engaged because you, along with they, know that the children of that neighborhood, they're worth what? They're worth fighting for, right? Their future is worth um, fighting for. They're precious in the sight of God. So I, I just read a book recently by a man named Harrison Scott um, Keyes, mostly a humorist. Um, uh, but this book was more serious because virtually in the first pages of the book, he discloses that um, the day that he discovered that his wife was involved with another man. Uh, he's, a, he's a dean of students at, uh, uh, in Savannah, the South Carolina School of Art Design, SCAD, and and um, 
And so he went to his pastor, having come to this, you know, this devastating day. His wife is having an affair. And he went to his pastor, and he said his pastor was uh, opened the door for him, made time for him, um, prayed for him, seemed genuinely uh, moved by his plight. And when he kind of said, well, what do we do going from here? The pastor said, well, I can assemble the elders. We can charge your wife with uh, adultery. Um, if she doesn't repent, then we can excommunicate her. He said he kind of walked from the church thinking, I don't really not sure I want my wife banished. Um, uh, and he said later that day he was talking to one of his relatives and explaining his situation. It might have been even been his wife's sister who was not a Christian. And, uh, and it was a non-Christian then who said to him when he explained um, their situation, she said, well, you are going to fight for her, aren't you? And he couldn't help but think of the contrast between what, what his church had recommended and what this non-Christian had recommended. You are going to fight for her, aren't you? And that's the rest of the book. He fights for her. And uh, it's a bestseller, and that might tip you off to the outcome. Um, there are things worth fighting for. Marriages are one of them, right? Well, there's something Paul was willing to fight for, and that was the flourishing of the church of Jesus. Paul was a fighter. Remember, originally he was fighting what? To destroy the church. He was vicious. He'd been converted. He's still a fighter, though. Look at what he says at the end of the book of Galatians. I wish those, he says to the Galatians, who would unsettle you, this is about circumcision. I wish those who are unsettling you about circumcision, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Woo! Um, uh, so, here's the question. Are you willing to join the fray in the fight uh, for a flourishing church? Ready to go? Here we go. First thing. A fighting church. The people of Jesus fight for unity. They fight for unity. The unity of this brand new church of Jesus was under assault, right? Everywhere that Paul would go, uh, because he was Jewish, even in these areas that weren't in, uh, in Israel, he would go to the synagogue. Now you'd say, what were Jews doing out in these areas that were really Gentile areas? Why do you think the Jews were out there? Because Rome occupied um, Israel and Romans were um, harsh. And Jews fled for their safety, right? So everywhere he went, he went to the Jews first. And sometimes there was receptivity and there were conversions. But then he would go to the Gentile population there and he would preach in the, in the Beza, you know, in the, the, the town um, square, in the marketplace. And uh, God brought people to faith and he would gather together a church. But everywhere he went, when he left there to go to the next area, the next villages, in behind him would come uh, people who are called Judaizers. They were Jewish people who also were claiming to be followers of Jesus, but they undermined Paul's message. And this is the kind of thing they would say. They'd say, Paul has a different gospel. Paul's message is different than what the apostles are teaching and different than what Jesus taught the apostles. So Peter teaches this, they would say, but Paul is teaching this. And do not listen um, to Paul, right? Uh, Peter, James, and John are on a different track uh, than Paul. He was 
you know, he was the, the target of first century cancel culture. They were trying to silence and shut down Paul's ministry. They were trying to upset this apostolic unity and divide the church. Listen, the division of the church has been a problem um, uh, twice in history. There's been two major divisions of Christianity. Really just two. One didn't happen for, the first one didn't happen for a thousand years. In 1054, there was a division between Eastern and Western Christians. And that's why if you're in Ukraine or Russia or um, uh, Armenia or Greece, uh, the churches there are called what? The Orthodox Church, right? The Orthodox Church, that comes from that split that happened. A thousand years later, it still hasn't been resolved. Um, and then 500 years later, there was another split in the church, the Western church. That was called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. So here, one split took 1,000 years. The other took 1,500 years. We're talking about 20 years from the start of the church. And the church is threatened to split, right? So Paul heads to Jerusalem uh, because uh, he's going to fight for the unity of the church. And he sets, he gets Peter, James, and John. They're like the pillars, right? Um, they're the apostolic inner circle. And, uh, and he sets his ministry um, before them. Um, first time he's been to Jerusalem in 14 years. We got to settle this. And you know what happened there? Um, they heard Paul's gospel and they did not modify it. They received the uncircumcised Gentile Titus as a brother. They endorse Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. They extend to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And the Jerusalem three only have one request. What's that? Remember the poor. Remember the poor in Jerusalem. Because believe it or not, those Gentile areas were more prosperous. They were often Roman controlled areas, right? Um, Roman uh, uh, citizens often there. Um, and uh, and so the, 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 the Jerusalem... Christians say, because what was happening to the Christians in Jerusalem, they were not only oppressed by the Romans, but they're oppressed by the Jews, right? They're completely cast out of the synagogue. There's no charity. There's no help. They were starving to death. And uh, Paul says, see what a beautiful picture of unity, right? The Gentiles are going to come to the Jews aid financially and do it with glad hearts. Fighting for the unity of the church matters. That's what we see right here in the earliest days of the church. And we have to be constantly vigilant about the unity of the church. You know, imagine as divided as our world is, if people were looking, I have to find somewhere where people actually like each other, where people actually get along. Is there such a thing in this world still in our country? And they walk into a church only to discover what? This is worse than out there, right? If they come into the church and they d discover divisiveness and bickering and selfishness and, and power factions and everything, this is worth fighting for, right? The beauty of Christ's um, church. Why do we need to be united? I mean, is walking through this world hard? Is passing through this world on the way to heaven if you're a Christian hard? I just looked at someone right when I said that whose daughter was murdered eight years ago. The, uh, the person was just finally convicted of that um, crime. 
Is walking through this world hard? Every family's got a story, don't they, in this room? Pain and suffering and children lost and all sorts of things and drug abuse and divorce and things that have riled. Every, everywhere. It's hard. This world's hard. Is it, is it hard to walk as a Christian through this world? Is it hard to be a Christian in Iran, Saudi Arabia, right? Is it hard? Is it hard to be a Christian in North Korea, China, Japan? Japan, you may not face opposition. You just won't find many Christians, right? Is it hard to be a Christian in Cuba? Um, it's hard. I mean, who do we have against us? The world, the flesh, the devil, right? You know, what did the early colonists say? If we don't hang together, then we'll what? We'll hang separately, right? Uh, we had better hang together. If we're going to oppose the British Empire, we better hang together. Mutual defenestration leads to almost certain annihilation. One of the great phrases in all of history, it's a phrase that described the Greek city-states, right? And here comes the Persian Empire to attack them. Well, the Athenians and the Spartans, they were used to fighting each other, right? They like to fight each other. They said, if we keep fighting each other, mutual defenestration, you know what defenestration is? That's when you throw people off the top of the castle, right? Edward Longshanks in Braveheart throws his son's lover off out of the castle window. I mean, these are great moments in, in history. Um, if, if mutual defenestration leads to certain annihilation, the Greek city-states bound together and they rebuff the Persians, maintaining the unity of the church is worth fighting for. I mean, the tales of church disunity just border on the, on the unbelievably silly. Um, friend told us that, um, uh, that, that at his church there was, a, there was rancor, there was a split because um, somebody moved the coffee service to a wall right outside the sanctuary. And the deacons said, no, 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 that needs to be in, we have to preserve the sanctuary, that needs to be in the fellowship hall. And, uh, and when the um, leaders of the church back to the move of the coffee, every one of the deacons quit. I mean, there are things you've got to fight for, right? You know, where the coffee um, is placed. You know, a church has to decide, we're not going to argue about the amount of water we use in baptism. We're not going to uh, argue about wine in the Lord's Supper versus grape juice. We're certainly not going to argue about whether it's, you know, uh, what kind of red wine it's going to be. Um, we're, we're, um, we're not going to argue about whether it's kosher to have pictures of Jesus in a child's storybook Bible. We're not going to argue about politics, and we're not going to argue about COVID, um, just to give examples. We cannot waste bullets firing at each other. We have too much brokenness in our world to spend our energy on that. And you know, one of the great... Um, Things I'm, I'm thankful for God. In 40 years, in the start of our church, we have never um, split as a church. We've never had a faction leave this church in anger. Oh yeah, okay, there's a family here, a family there. They don't like something that goes on. But, um, but people have hung um, together um, in this church. We've kept the vision of the mission ahead of all our own personal preferences. I do remember the first time we ever uh, had drums in the service. 
It was in the gym. It was over 20 years ago. And, and then we had a curtain on the stage. And so we put the drums behind the curtain so nobody could see. And then every week we inched the drums out about five inches a week, you know. Slowly we opened the curtain a little bit more. And you could hear, there's, wait, there's drums. Oh, man, they must be piping that in. And, uh, and then there was the week where the drums emerged. And I survived. It was close. Um, so I remember one time getting a, a barrage of, of harsh letters from an anonymous individual. They were critical of me. They were critical of the preaching. They were critical of the church. They were critical of our spending. They were critical. I remember they were critical of the fountain. They were really bugged about the fountain and claiming the church had spent all sorts of money on the fountain, which uh, wasn't true. Um, it was given by a donation um, and, uh, but it was very over the top, very out of line, very personal attacks. And, um, I stopped even reading that, but we, we got a new elder in our church and, and, uh, he was kind of a tough guy from up the Northeast. And, um, he, um, uh, was blue collar laborer and he came to my office one day and he said, I heard about these letters you're getting. And I showed him one of them and he said, uh, well, this is going to stop. And, uh, I said, I know who's doing that. And he said, just stay right here. I'll be back in an hour. And he left. An hour later, he came back and said, that's it. You won't get any letters anymore. And I honestly don't know if they ever found that body or not. I, I, I don't. And honestly, I don't care because the letter stopped. And um, got to fight. Got to fight. I'm for the church. I'm... Uh, um, listen, here's, here's, our, here's our posture, here's our ethos, right? We can't um, be fragging each other. Now, we can't be, um, you can't have friendly fire. Too many people are going to hell. Too many people are walking through this world that don't know Jesus, right? God's been so kind to us. God plucked us out of the darkness. We've got too many kids that don't have dads. We've got too many kids that don't have a family at all. We've got too many marriages that are struggling to hang on, Right? And we've got drug addiction. We've got, we got broken, hurting people. We don't have time to be shooting at each other, right? We've got, we got work to do. We're going to make all things new, right? You got it? There are things worth fighting for. Paul, Peter, James, John, they fought for unity. Um, we're going we're gonna to fight for that too. Second, let me say that the fighting church fights for the gospel. The church has to fight um, for the gospel. There's a constant threat of gospel distortion. I mean, it was so bold for Paul to go to Jerusalem and really daring to bring Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. Paul aims to meet with um, the pillars, Peter, James, and John. The Bible tells us there were some gate crashers. That's in verse four of chapter two, uh, who sneak into the meeting to try to disrupt it. And, and these gate crashers, these opposition to Paul, what they were assisting was, if you're going to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you still have to be Jewish. You still have to keep all the Jewish ceremonial laws. You still have to be circumcised. Every Christian in the Gentile world, they're going to follow Christ, have to be circumcised. It says that in the book of Acts. Some men came down from Judea teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, you are not saved. You are not a Christian. You are lost. 
See, that was the charge. Paul is not making these Gentiles. He's around telling Gentiles that they can come to Jesus, they can be followers of Jesus, but they don't have to be Jewish. See, what they wanted Christianity to be was a reform movement inside of Judaism. This didn't have to do with the rest of the world. We were going to reform Judaism. You got it? And uh, they weren't charging Paul with not teaching the importance of the Ten Commandments because he clearly was. No, it's these ceremonial laws, the laws that had to do from the Old Testament with diet and, and your dress and, and Sabbath day obligations and you can't touch dead animals and you can't eat anything with a cloven hoof and you can't touch dead people and you can't touch lepers and you can't even touch Gentiles. Uh, all of this will render you unclean. So Paul is afraid that the apostles are going to cave and they're not going to stand up to these agitators. And why is he afraid of that? Because they're all Jewish. Because they're all proud of their cultural heritage. He's afraid that their prejudice uh, towards Gentiles as Jews is going to win the day and the church will split. Paul says, the gospel has no additives. If we require the Gentiles to be circumcised, then we're saying Jesus isn't enough. And he stands there. He takes his stand. You are right with God by grace alone. Jesus plus nothing. If your obedience to any law is a requirement for reconciliation with God, then you nullify the gospel. And you know what happened? The big three, they agreed completely. They didn't modify Paul's gospel. They didn't improve it. They didn't tweak it in any way. The Bible says in verse six, they added nothing. You know, these cleanliness laws, you know what they were really for? They were really to teach us that we were completely unable to present ourselves before God as clean and sinless, right? Nobody could keep them. You know, some of those laws, you couldn't eat pork, That'd kind of ruin the 4th of July, wouldn't it? I mean, you couldn't eat pork, no barbecue. Couldn't eat shellfish. Why live in Florida if you can't have stone crab claws? How many of y'all are into stone crab claws? I mean, when I eat a stone crab, I mean, I feel the father's pleasure, right? Um, it all sorts of, every kind of law, you, you, you know, on the Sabbath, you couldn't work, you couldn't walk, you know, uh, you could only walk so many paces from your house. You couldn't carry your toothbrush even on the Sabbath uh, because that would be labor lifting up. I mean, these intricate laws, um, all of this, if you were menstruating, you were unclean. Um, and, and yet it's fascinating that even though you, you had to pay such diligence to being clean in every way, you still had to bring sacrifices, kill animals to cover your sins, right? All of it was to teach us that there's no way that we can save ourselves, right? No way that we can save ourselves. Jesus has to do it all. Only Jesus can make us clean, right? See, Jesus doesn't nullify these laws. He what? He fulfills them. He keeps them for us. He's clean for us perfectly. You got it? I've told you before, a man came to our church years ago. I'll never forget it. And he said, Pastor, uh, you teach grace and gospel and stuff like that. But that's not the way I was raised. That's not the way I was taught in my church. Um, I said, how were you taught in your church? He said, I, you know, honestly, Pastor, I just want to go to heaven the old-fashioned way. I said, well, what was the old-fashioned way? He said, keep the Ten Commandments. 
And I said, honestly, if that's the way you were taught, I hate it. I mean, you're, he was probably in his 60s, 70s. I said, I hate when somebody changes the rules in the middle of the game, you know? If that's the way you were taught, if you've kept the Ten Commandments, I've got connections upstairs, I'll get you in. <laughs> if those are the rules, we're going to stick with your rules. I said, but you got to help me. How many have you kept? And after about five minutes of struggle, he said, um, six. I said, Tom, that's what happened to going to heaven the old fashioned way. Nobody makes it. That's the point of the cleanliness rules. You can't make it on your own. We're saved by Jesus plus nothing. You know, we're saved by works. Do you realize that? We are saved by works, just not our works. Jesus' obedience. He doesn't just save us by dying on the cross. He saves us by every single day of his life, obeying every law. He is the second Adam who accomplishes what the first Adam failed to do. He obeys God. And we get credit for that. And I wonder, how do we add to the gospel? How do we add to Jesus? I think we add to Jesus by trying hard, right? Jesus plus trying hard. Think of the prodigal son. There's two sons of a, of a dad, Jesus tells a story, and the younger one's rotten to the core. Rotten, rotten, rotten. He, he repents of his sins and he comes home and he's reconciled to his father and all his rottenness. But there's another brother and this brother isn't rotten. He's good, he serves, he's religious, all of that. Um, but when the story ends, he's not in the party, he's not in the father's house, he's not right with his father because he won't repent of his what? Christians, too many people think Christians are people who repent of their sins, but they also do something else. They repent of their righteousness. They repent of all their attempts to make themselves acceptable to God. You got that? Brett Favre was a, a professional football player for many years. He played into his 40s, and, and you wonder why he was playing when he's in his 40s. When you're 40 years old, your bones get a little more brittle. You can't run around so fast. And at any moment, I mean, you can not only get injured, you could get killed. There's 350-pound angry people uh, on every time they say hut. Um, that are trying to take your head off. And, um, and so what's he doing still doing this? And you know what uh, Brett Favre basically told his story. He said, my dad was a football coach. And uh, growing up, um, you know, in, in, in junior high, high school, whatever, I could play a game. I could throw for 350 yards in that game as a quarterback. I could run for two other scores. Um, uh, you know, our team could win 56 to 3. And when uh, I came off the field, my dad would come up to me and he would say, you know that wheel route we were running in the, in the third quarter? Uh, the guy was covered and you threw it there anyway. Did you see the tight end was wide open? You can't miss that next time. Why was Brett Favre still playing football when he was in his 40s? Because he was longing to what? To quiet the voice of the inner critic, Right? Because he longed to hear a father say, well done, well done, son. And you know, the only place you'll ever hear that from is who? God, God. It's the only one who can quell that inner storm. It's Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have the father's nuts about you. That's the gospel. We got to fight for it. 
We can't walk away from it, right? We can't budge on that. Ready? Last thing. Something else we gotta fight for, and that's welcome. To be, what, what it is is really that a church is an accurate representation of the family of God. And again, in the prodigal son, what do we discover about God? He's a what? He's a welcomer, right? Remember that rotten son? What happens when he comes home? His father hugs him, he kisses him, he forgives him. Um, The church has to fight for welcome. When Paul brings Titus back to Jerusalem, he's provoking a fight. Do you realize that? He purposely brings an uncircumcised Gentile to Jerusalem. I mean, here's the question. Is Titus going to be welcome? Are they going to make him be circumcised? The false teachers didn't believe that Gentiles were equals. Jews in general did not believe Gentiles were equals. God loved them. They were the chosen race. They were the holy people. You didn't associate with Gentiles. You didn't eat with Gentiles. They called Gentiles dogs. They believed Jewish culture was superior and they didn't want it polluted. You certainly didn't want your son or daughter marrying a Gentile. They were ethnic snobs. So Titus' presence is a test, right? Peter, James, and John can talk about how inclusive the gospel makes a person in the abstract, right? But now right in their midst, here's the test. Are they just gonna talk about the gospel are they going to they gonna eat, drink, talk, touch, and worship with a Gentile who's uncircumcised? It's a test. Kind of like bringing an interracial couple to a church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1960, right? It would be a test. How much does this church believe what they teach? How much does this church believe the New Testament, right? But... What happens? The apostles welcome Titus. They believe that there were no longer to be any divisions in the church, not divisions based on race or culture or nationality. What does verse 28 of chapter three say? There is neither what? Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all one in Christ Jesus. This is what the church must always fight for. The problem is everybody wants to group up with people like themselves. But Jesus' family is inclusive. The more a church has black and white and brown and purple people, the more the church has rich and poor, Bible scholars and Bible beginners, right? Highly educated and, and, uh, and laborers, people who are stylish in their dress and, and people who aren't and you know who you are, right? <laughs> people who are young and people who are elderly, Republicans and Democrats and those who wouldn't dare be either one, right? One family. The more that that's what the church looks like. But we don't like that. We like to group up with people like us. There are people who are Republican who won't talk to a Democrat. There are people who are Democrats who won't talk to a Republican. Guess what? Not in the church of Jesus. That stuff doesn't fly in the church of Jesus. We fight for unity in the church of Jesus. One guy who said he loved AA, that's what he said, I love it. When I go to church and I'm late, everyone looks at me like a leper. They all turn and watch, all those guys in the back row, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, they all turn and watch me all the way to my seat. Can't you even get to church on time? Isn't church important enough to you that you would put Jesus first in your life? 
He said, you know, when I go to an AA meeting and I'm late, everybody stands up and they hug me and they say, gosh, we were so worried. We thought maybe you'd gone on a bender. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. I didn't know this story for a long time. Guy just told it to me a couple years ago. He said, back in the 1960s in the church I grew up in, in in Miami, for the first time in came an interracial um, couple. And uh, some people were bothered by that. And it came up at an elders meeting. My father was on the elder board of the church. And they said, when that came up in the meeting, is how should the church respond? And my, the, this person said, your dad said, this is how we'll respond. When they come in the church, I'm going to sit on one side of them. And Bob, you're going to sit on the other side of them. And if anybody has a problem with this, they're going to have to go through us. Now, you like to hear stuff like that about your dad. You like to have a dad that took a stand in a moment like that. Um, You like to have somebody who fought for the beauty of the church be your dad. Well, you have that. If you're in Jesus, your dad did that. Your dads, Peter, James, John, and Paul, your dads, my dad, our fathers in the faith, they fought for this. And so will we. You know, I am from Miami and I I have an affection for um, the Cuban people, the plight of uh, Cubans locked in the hellhole of of communism. And uh, you know, uh, if if you know Florida history, there's been waves of immigration and moments where people had to escape. And sometimes in their desperation, they got on uh, inner tubes, right? To get out of Cuba. They, they, they of course, got on boats. They, they got on rafts. They, um, they came in bathtubs. They came on doors trying to float their way desperate. How many thousands died trying to make it here? Well, our government has an odd policy for Cuba like nowhere else. And that is that if you get caught in the water, you get taken back. But if you get your feet on soil, you can stay. So during one of these waves of of people escaping Cuba, just coming over not that many years ago, the Coast Guard was out there um, interdicting, you know, picking them up. And and that's not not a slight on the Coast Guard. They're told what to do, right? They have to follow orders. And uh, and when they pick them up, they're bringing them back um, to Cuba. But the Coast Guard wasn't the only one out there. In fact, the Coast Guard was vastly outnumbered by who? Cuban immigrants to the United States who had made it in years past and they knew the plight of their comrades and so they're out there in their boats competing with the Coast Guard to get to them first. And if they could get them on their boats, they'd race for the shore and get them on the soil, right? So that they could stay. That's what a church has to decide. Which one are we? Are we the Coast Guard? Is the purpose of the church to stand at the doors of the church and say, the broken, the needy, the people aren't like us, Stay away. We want, we want the good people. Gentiles, stay away. We're the chosen people. Or is the church those who recognize once we were immigrants, right? Once we were outside the family of God, but God cast his eye on us and God came into the world to save us and get us and get us in. Which kind of church will we be, Seven Rivers Church? I know your hearts. I love your hearts. We're, we're going to be the kind of church that fights to welcome. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. 
Jesus stands ready, ready to save you. That's a church worth fighting for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unity that you've given our church through the years. It's not for any reason other than your kindness. We are contentious by nature, but you have been so kind to um, cause us to lock arms and and walk together um, for the good of our community. Lord, um, thank you for the sweetness of the gospel that we don't have to leave church every week thinking, I'm just not good enough. Uh, I failed again. I'm such a failure. And we can leave church every week thinking Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. I'm his forever. And Lord, we can take that same beautiful gospel and throw our doors wide open and welcome people so that they might encounter your love and grace too. Lord, I thank you for as much as we ever fight for this. You are the fighter. You're the one we follow into the fray. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.